case you didn't know, um, after a few hour-long sermons, uh, Mo bought us a clock there in the back to make sure that we don't go that long. So don't look at it while I am. I mean, don't think, all right, it's getting close. You better wrap it up because if I see your heads turn, I'm going to go a little longer. But glad to have you all here today. Um, for those of you all that don't know me, I'm John, one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm so excited about this new series that we're getting ready to start. So I'm going to pray for our time, um, and then we'll start. So bow your heads and pray with me. Uh, Father, we're grateful for all of these songs that we get to sing. Uh, we're thankful that we're constantly reminded that although the world that we live in is hollow and it's empty and things are never what we expect to hope them to be, uh, we're grateful that as we come to you, Lord, all the words that are said about who you are, um, at best, are understatements. There's no such thing as a hyperbole with you. There's no way that we come to you and find out that uh, words about you were better than who you are. But one day, all of us are going to meet you face to face, and we're going to find that all the words that have ever been spoken about you have been drastically inadequate to describe you, Father. And so I pray that that would be the type of joy that we live with in this life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, a few weeks ago, some friends of mine and I were at a party, and we came up with this new game. And the game that we came up with was called First Job, Worst Job. So we just asked folks, hey, what, what was the first job? Worst? What was that job that you were so excited to get and to work for? And what was your worst job? What's that one job that you weren't excited to get, but you had to sit back and evaluate if what you got for that job was worth it? right? So my first job, Chuck E. Cheese, another sermon for another day. My worst job was at this place called Mervyn's. Mervyn's was a clothing store, and I use that word was very intentionally. May they rest in peace. Uh, Mervyn's was a store in that it had all of the things that was needed to be considered a store. Had a building, had clothes, employees, money, but they didn't have one thing. And do you know what that was? Customers, right? So I got this job and I had an anal manager and he was always wanting to make sure that we were at work, but there was no work to do. And this was my worst job because it was at this job that I learned that fake work is actually harder than real work. So we'd spend all of our time and we would unfold clothes just so that we could fold them up. We would unbox shoes just so that we could put them back into the boxes so that when our manager came by, he saw us at work. And it was my worst job because my days were filled with activity, with no achievement. I worked, but I really didn't do anything. Well, I didn't win the game that we played that day. There was this one guy named Mike who talked about this job that he had in D.C. where he worked shoveling gravel out of train cars in the summer in D.C., and he made $8 an hour. But he drove this SUV from Virginia to get there, so he got to the point where he said, hey, I'm getting paid for all of this work, and this work is paying for my gas to get to work, so I'm actually just working so that I can go back to work. And he sat back and said, pointless activity with no achievement. So we quit, as most of us did with our worst job. Now, 
I don't know where you would fall with that first job, worst job thing, but one thing that I know is that with all of us here in this room, there is work that is taxing on all of us. There's a job that we all have and are involved in, and we spend our time trying to find out what gain do we have, and that job is what I call the business of living. Living is hard work. Life isn't easy for anybody. Here's what I know. Regardless of how good your life is, the garden of your ideal life is littered with disappointments. Nobody has a past. Everybody's going to find disappointment in the things that they've hoped for. Education, for those of y'all who just started school, y'all may be a week and a half in, but you're starting to learn this is not like TV. Can it, it's not like Drumline. It's not like Stomp the Yard. Like, it's work, and it's not fun. Friendships, for those of y'all that feel like you're in a friendship with your best friend, you find out there's disappointments, there's letdown, marriages, injustice that's in our world, oppression, poverty, yes, to death, and even religion. I went to play ball with a friend of mine yesterday and we sat and talked and he shared, hey, I was a part of a church, but I stopped being a part of that church when I found out that the pastor's private life didn't live up to the expectations that I had of him. Everything that's in your ideal life is littered with disappointment. And so in this room, I think that if we could split up this room into three parts, there'd be three types of folks here in this room. There'd be people that are hopeful, Your life is on the incline. There's things, and as you look to the future, you're excited for all of what can come, and your main question is, how do I get there? How do I get to the future that I want? And you spend your time trying to find out what are the things that I need to do to be successful. You're hopeful. Then there's those that are here in this room, and you've made it to the top. So your life right now is a highlight reel. So Your concern is not with how I'm going to get there. You have what you want, but the question that you ask yourself is, what else? I have all that I want. Why am I not happier than I am right now? Why do I feel the need to keep on getting more stuff? I thought I had the things that would make me happy. Well, then there's those here in this room that, You're not hopeful. Your life is not a highlight, but you feel rather helpless and hopeless. You feel like you're at the bottom. Your question is not how do I get to where I hope to go or what else do I need? Your question is merely when is all this going to be over? I don't take for granted in a room this size that there are people that right now or have in the past struggled with suicidal thoughts, feeling like life is so hard, I just want to get out. And what I want to say to you that it's God's kindness that you're here right now. And so the future has enough to worry about or for you to be concerned about. But right now, in the 37 minutes and 20 seconds that we have left, reflect on how good God is that he would bring you here. So I think the question, regardless of where you fall, is that what do we gain? What do we really get out of all the hard work that we put into this life? 
And for that, we're going to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. This book is all about that truth. What is it that we get out of life? Um, As we get ready to turn to the book, I just want to give you all a little heads up of where we're going to go. It's going to take us at least 16 sermons to move through this whole book. We're going to take our time. So what that means is, is it's going to be about four months. So we're going to break it up into four parts. We're going to do two parts here in this year, and we'll pick up the next two parts at the start of next year. Um, this book that's just unlike any other book. As Tripp talked, it's wisdom, literature, and so... I just want to show you how that compares. If Proverbs is a book about how to get what you want out of life, if Proverbs is a book for people that want success, Ecclesiastes is a book for people who have success but find out, I want something more. If Proverbs is about how to live to get what I want, Ecclesiastes is about why do I even live in the first place. Job is a book all about a man who found the meaning of life because he lost it all. Ecclesiastes is a book about a guy who found the meaning to life because he gained it all. Genesis tells us what went wrong with the world. Ecclesiastes tells us how do we live in a world that's gone wrong. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. I'm going to start off and read this and set a little bit of context. And it says this, the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What else does man, or what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Three things just to set a little bit of context. The director, a definition in the domain. The director, the person who wrote this book, um, It's unknown. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, Some folks think Solomon wrote this book, right? It starts off and it says, uh, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. For those of y'all that don't know much about Solomon, Solomon was the child of David's side chick turned wife, Bathsheba, right? So he grew up troubled, struggling with identity. God made him wise. And you go through the Bible, and what you find out is Solomon had more than anybody else. So even if he didn't write this book, the person that wrote this book left things intentionally ambiguous so so that as we look, we at least give a nod to him, right? It's one thing for somebody that has no money to say, money isn't everything. And you would say, well, of course you'd say that because you don't have any. It's another thing for such as we look at it all to say, hey, listen, money isn't everything everything. So as we look at the author of the book, this is not somebody that is bitter because he doesn't have. It's somebody who has it all and says it's empty. A definition, vanity, this word vain, right? In verse two, he'll use that word five times. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As he talks about life, he's saying it's vain, right? The word that's used here in the original writings in the Hebrew is a word hebel. And that means empty, right? Like uh, vapor, like the breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold day. It's empty, but it's also hollow, 
So as he talks of all of life, it's like life is hollow. There's nothing really to grasp onto. It's here one day and then it's gone. Hebel is actually the same root word that's used in the name of somebody that you meet on the first pages of your Bible. Abel. You know that story, right? Cain and Abel. As he talks about life, he's saying life, all of our lives are like Abel's. You look through your Bible, and in the fourth chapter of your Bible, you're introduced to four people. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. Adam and Eve talk directly to God and they sin. Cain talks directly to God and sins. Abel has no words, from all that we can tell, lives a righteous life. And we don't see how Adam, Eve, and Cain die. But do you know how Abel dies? He's brutally murdered. And as he talks about life, he just says, this is life. This is the life that we live, y'all. Where 12-year-olds in Ohio get murdered by police. Do you know who the police, the ones, the bad ones, they don't pay for it. But do you know who does pay, pay for it? Five good cops in Dallas. So is life. This is the life that we live. And it feels depressing. And it only goes downhill from here, so be encouraged. (laughs) So he asked the same question that we do. What do we, if this is what life is like, what do we really gain from all of our hard work? And the very first thing that he does is he does this. He makes an observation, and we're going to look at what he observes Then we're going to look about what he overlooks. And lastly, we're going to talk about how he acts. Here's the very first thing that he observes. Here's the curse of creation, all of creation, and that's this. Creation is always grinding, but it's never gaining. Creation for all of us is like my job at Mervyn's. All activity, no achievement. Start here in verse 4 and read with me, and it says this. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not in as what's fied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Creation. He just makes an observation. He says, hey, this is how the the world works. Our world is set up to always be grinding, but never gaining. So what he does is he just makes an observation, and he talks about what lies 
over the earth, what lies on the earth, and under the earth. Look here at verse verse five and or verse five and six, and it says this: The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. The picture that he paints is this: The sun rises in the east, sets in the west. The wind goes north and south, north and south. And so what he's saying is, you know, as I look at the sun, the sun has never called off work. The sun never takes a sick day. The sun is never late to work. As I look at creation, I see that the sun is always at work. But for what? Just to come back to work the next day. The wind does the same thing. It blows and it blows Why? It's just this never-ending cycle where it seems like the same things take place over and over and over. Look here at verse 7, what goes on under the earth. It says this, all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Even rivers, they're constantly moving into still bodies of water. But the waters never spill over. It's all of this activity, but no achievement. He's like, as I look at creation and what goes on, it's always hard at work, but nothing really gets done. And then he says, this curve of this activity with no achievement, it even spills over into humanity. Verse 8 is the first time that he's going to use the word full. And he says this. Here's one thing that I know is full. All things are full of weariness. The only thing that I know, I don't know what I'm going to gain from my work, but I can tell you this. I'm going to be exhausted, tired, and frustrated by the work that I have to do. So much so that even if I try to explain to somebody how frustrated I am by it, he says this, that a man can't utterly describe There's always something to complain and lament about. True? There's always something that's wrong. And he's saying, as long as we're here, it seems like we're trapped in this world where things are wrong. If that's not enough, as it talks about our humanity, verse 9, it says this. Even human history is the same way. What has been done is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. He's saying work as hard as you can, but one thing I can promise you is that all of your hard work one day is going to be forgotten. Tomorrow we celebrate a holiday. What day is it? Does anybody know what what that day is really for? No, what you know is that I get a day off of work. But what we found out is that day is set up to celebrate the achievements of what has gone on before us. So for you to really respect that day, you should take out tomorrow and celebrate all the people that are hard at work that have brought you the things that you love and enjoy. But do you know what? 
You're not going to do that because before right now, you didn't even know what that day was for. Listen, how many of you in here, and don't raise your hands because I feel like folks are going to raise their hands and lie. How many of you in here know the name of your great-great-grandfather? You have eight of them. These are people that are directly responsible for you being here today. You have eight of them, and I would wager most of the folks here in this room don't even know their name. All of the hard work that they did to bring you into this world, you don't even know their name. Do you see his point here? The curse of creation is that we're always grinding, we're always at work, but we never really gain anything. Even inventions, right? So we would look and say, nah, John, but there are things that are new. The Internet is brand new. Folks didn't have that years ago. When he says there's nothing new under the sun, don't think that he's trying to talk about inventions. Of course there are new things, but he's saying intentions. The Internet was created to share information. Do you know what man will use it for? to sling insults during the VMAs. That doesn't change. People always use very, very good tools for very, very bad things. And he's saying, work all that you want to. Do all that you can to fight injustice. But his frustration is, people are going to stay the same. They're going to find some way to undo your work. And this hit home when a group of us went to Scotland. And what we say, hey, Scotland is mostly white. There aren't black folks. So surely we're not going to see the same things that took place here. But what we found was that even in Scotland, with the absence of a color divide, what takes place is you have poor white folks out there that find themselves in these things called schemes or what we would call projects. And these folks that are there that share the same skin tone as folks that are there find themselves about to get priced out of their homes because people are starting to build stuff and they don't care where where they go, shutting down schools in the middle of their scheme so that they can come in and take over. And all of the same things. So as he looks, he's saying the curse of creation is this. It's always grinding, but it's never gaining at the end of the day, he feels that the world that we live in is like a casino where the house always wins. Do you know the science behind a casino? A casino is designed to not make you rich. A casino is designed to bring in folks that are rich, keep them there until they have their money, and then spit them out. Here's a few things. If you go into a casino, what you will never see on any wall is a clock because they never want you to know how much time that you spend there. In a casino, do you know what else you won't see? A window because they want you to be completely consumed by what takes place under the roof, under the sun. They want you to be completely consumed with what takes place there. And they never want you to look beyond it and remember, hey, there's something greater than what I have in 
front of my eyes. It's full of lights, sounds, and activity to always keep you engaged. Do you know what else it's full of? Near misses. So the slot machines are designed to give you two sevens in a row so that you constantly think, I'm so close. All I need is that third one. This is the same way that our world is, is designed. Think of the relationships that some of us find our, ourselves in. And we, 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 we go to people and we view people as things, uh, as those that will bring us the ultimate satisfaction. And they have so much of what we want, but then there's this one piece. And you can feel like, oh, I was so close. If only they had this then you go and spend your time searching for somebody else, not knowing people were never designed to bring you complete fulfillment. Casinos are full of near misses. Here's what else they do. People that win big, they treat them like kings. Do you know why? So that they'll feel special and they'll stay because they know the longer that they stay, the more likely they are to leave with any money. And if they can take folks, prop them up and treat them like kings, do you know what everybody else in there will think? They'll envy and feel like, I want that, so I'm going to work for all of the things that they have. It's even so bad that the bathrooms are put way in the back and casinos are built like a maze. So even if you want to leave, you constantly get caught up. So that the longer that you stay, you find the house always wins. And you leave and you, you feel like, what gain did I have? I didn't gain anything. I came in here and I lost it all. It's funny because even as we read this and think of the lives that we live and it sinks in just how depressing all of this is. We don't want to believe that it's true. But we know that it's true. We feel it on the inside. We know that this is what our life feels like. Everywhere in each of our lives, there's some place where right now you feel like, why bother? You just want to throw in the towel. For some of you, it may be the job that you had. And you just feel like it's so empty. It's frustrating. I just want to quit. For some of y'all, it may be marriage. And you can't stand the person that you wake up next to in the morning. And you feel like, I just want to quit and be done with it all. For some of us in here, it's even the fight for justice that we may find ourselves in for the first time. And you feel like, I'm always grinding, but I'm never gaining anything. Why bother? Why work? All of us know that if this is what life is like, always grinding, never gaining, it's depressing, and it's hard work. And so just a, a small note for all of my friends in here that may not be Christian, right, to all the non-Christians in this room, I want you to know this, all right? Christians have hard lives. Even Christians get depressed as they think about the prospect of that. You may have Christian friends that seem like they're not depressed, but I want you to know 
Christians are depressed. If you have Christian friends and you don't think that they get depressed at times, it's because they're not being completely honest. So if you're a non-Christian, I want you to know nobody lives a fairy tale life. Christians get depressed. Now to those in here that would consider themselves Christians, I want you to know Christians get depressed. It's a hard life, and I know that you don't want to speak those things into existence on your life. I know that you're scared of the things that you share, but I want you to know that what he's doing right here is is he's just making an observation about what life is like, this world that we live in, the curse of the creation, always grinding, never gaining. It's easy to feel empty, full of regret sorrowful, second-guessing decisions that you're making, full of anxiety, trapped and enslaved. Those are the observations that he makes about life. And now, now we're going to get to the bad news. You're like, oh, that's not the bad news? Nah, that's the facts. That's what life is like. Here's the bad news. Here's what's so hard to grasp about all of what he said. The bad news is not what he observes. The bad news comes in what he overlooks. Creation, what's wrong with the world is wrong with the world. Here's what's wrong with him or what we see here. It's not what he sees, but what he doesn't see, what he doesn't mention. It's funny because as you look through from verse 4 to verse 11, he talks about creation and all the things that are done in this world, and he views it as a critic. Do you know what he leaves out, though? God. This is the only place that I can think of in the Bible where somebody reflects so heavily on creation but crops out the creator. And so here's what takes place. If you look at creation and you reflect on all of what goes on in the world, but you leave God out of the picture, you don't even consider him. You don't treat God as he should, uh, as he should be treated. And do you know what you turn into? A critic. God's not celebrated, but we've uplifted ourselves to where we think our search for meaning has to be found when you and I are at the center. Listen, there's a cure for that. And the cure for that is, hey, we've just got to put God right back in the picture. And so here is the bad news. Creation's curse is that it's always grinding. It's not gaining. Here's man's curse. Man's curse is this. We are allergic to the antidote. An allergy takes place when this, right? You'll, you'll find yourself, you'll sneeze or you'll cough. And what that is, is it's your body expelling something that has gone inside of it, right? So folks will sneeze and cough, and that's just your body reacting, trying to get that out. As we talk about the solution, making God the center of, of our lives, Sin 
is not just that we do bad things. Sin is that what Adam and Eve had did, it's a gust on to all of us. And now there is this allergic reaction when it comes to God being placed at the center of our lives. That every time the, 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 uh, uh, the solution is found in God, each time that God is... Uh, trying to be placed at the heart of all of what we do, our relationships, our jobs, our goals, our money. There's something inside of us that wants to crop them out and push them out. I wonder, is this the way that you view the world? Do you tend to view the world as a critic? When you wake up in the morning and the sunlight creeps through the blinds in your windows and wakes you up? Do you naturally think of what a good guy that would cause this sun to shine on the just and the unjust? What a good guy that would for thousands of years sustain an earth full of people who don't consider him. What a great guy. Or is the first thought that you tend to think of, I can't believe that I have to wake up next to this person again. I can't believe that I have to get up and go to another day at this job that I hate. I can't believe that I have to wake up another day in this bed all by myself. Emotions, what you feel on the inside, they speak honestly and unfiltered have to so much so much of us tend to think that the thing that we have to fight against is living a life that is against God so we think all right I want to try to do my best to where I don't oppose God in the things that he said but I want you to know that's not your biggest concern your biggest concern should be trying to live life without God which regardless of the creedal statements that you make, we all find ourselves in a place where we constantly want to put God on the shelf and look for meaning and fulfillment elsewhere. The point of this first part of Ecclesiastes is this. No matter how hard that you work, a life without God is a life without gain. No matter how hard that you work, No matter how hard that you work to find the right person, no matter how hard that you work to find the right job, no matter how hard that you work to find the right house, no matter how hard that you work to find the right car, a life without God is a life without gain. This world was not designed to spit people out of the casino as millionaires. It was designed to take everything from you. And after you die, regardless of how hard that you work, you'll be forgotten. And the bad news is that as hard as you try to find the antidote, we're naturally allergic to it. It's one thing to be sick because at least that you know, all right, there's a cure. It's another thing entirely to be allergic to the very cure because that ensures 
that the frustration that you know is only going to get worse. So what do we do if all of our hard work to get gain accomplishes nothing and our hard work to even find the solution proves to be vain because we're allergic to the very cure? Do you know what we have to do? We have to look for somebody that is an exception to the rule. And that's the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. This cycle that we find ourselves in, trapped, always working, never gaining, Jesus breaks the cycle. Jesus breaks the cycle. As you come into church week after week, you may be familiar with the gospel message. Christ came on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins, and he raised so that he could bring us back to God. But what I want you to know is the gospel is not just an announcement. The gospel is actually an announcement. That is the answer to your deepest concern, all of them. So when the Bible says, yo, all men are the same, there's nothing new under the sun, that applies for everybody else except for Jesus. Jesus comes in and there's this newness to him. There's something in Jesus that we've never seen before. Abel, right, that word, that life, uh, innocent man that died and got killed, that word means vain. Jesus means this. It comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. There is salvation in nobody else but Yahweh. There is gain in nobody else but God. And look at how Jesus fleshes all of this out. In Matthew 5, Jesus comes in and he says this where, hey, it's God that causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He reflects on creation in a different way than the rest of these guys do. Luke chapter 24, it's going to be here on the screen, and I'm going to read this. Jesus lives this life that seems very much like the life of Abel, who dies in vain. Jesus lives this perfect life. People walked with him, and Hear what takes place here. Three days after he died, he's with a group of folks, and it says this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had uh, happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from seeing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, disappointed. Then one of them named Cleopas said to him, are you the only one to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chiefified him and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And look here. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. They look at Christ, and they say, look at what took place. We put all of our hope in this guy, and do you know what? He disappointed us just like everybody else that took place. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 25 drops down and says this, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's what takes place. They're disappointed because they felt like Jesus came in and he was just like Abel. His life was vain. He lived this perfect life. And we put our hope in him, and he died, and now we're left to go through this life realizing that our hopes have crashed. And Jesus sits down with them, and it says that he takes them through, and he walks them through, and he helps them see, no, no, listen, all of that stuff was written in the Bible just so that you would have a backdrop so that when Christ came on the scene, you would realize that he was completely different. Hebrews chapter 12, y'all don't have to turn there. It's going to be up here on the screen. Listen to how it compares Jesus to Abel. 24 says this, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel died. God goes to to Cain and says this, the blood of your brother is crying for justice, justice, justice. Jesus died in a similar fashion to Abel, an innocent man slaughtered by the guilty. Do you know what God says about his blood? Jesus' blood isn't crying for justice. It's not crying for our heads. Jesus' blood is crying for forgiveness. That's the beauty. This is different than everybody else that lived. This is something that's brand new. The fact that people that are allergic to God, that don't consider God, that find ways to critique all of what God has done, that should be punished for all of their sin. Do you know what they get? Do you know what gain they have in life? I'll give you a clue. It doesn't come from their work at all. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Ecclesiastes is trying to find, hey, what gain do I have from all of the work that I do here? Jesus says, don't be so concerned about your work. If you're going to get any gain, it's not going to come from your hard work. It's going to come from his. And that's why the gospel is such good news. That if you're trying to look for gain in this life, if you're trying to look for fulfillment in this life, By what you can do, I want you to know, regardless of how hard that you work, a life without God is a life without gain. But if you look to Jesus, what you'll find is that we have ultimate gain already. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the work that we put into it. Jesus comes in and gives a complete new work. Do you know what he does as well? He gives us this new birth. He changes us from the inside out. He removes 
the allergy that we have that comes out and shows up in our actions. I had a professor at school who talked about the way that he saw this. And what he said was this, I've never seen God turn water into wine, but what I have seen God do is turn wine into milk. And he talked about his alcoholic father who was neglectful of them before he met Jesus. And then he met Jesus and he was changed by him. And all the money that he would spend on abusing alcohol, he used that money to buy milk for his kids. That's new. That's a change. You do know that's something fundamentally different than takes, that takes place because of Christ's work and not our work. Jesus also does work that will never be forgotten. All of the things that we do will be forgotten and slept on. But do you know the work that Jesus did on the cross, the work that we sing about week in and week out? For all eternity, we're going to be reflecting on that very work. So what do we do? How are our lives changed? How should they be changed? Very first one is this. Change doesn't come by your strong will, change comes from surrender. Change comes from saying, Lord, I've been trying to get this gain without you and apart from you. I've tried to look for good in the people that I surround myself with, the spouse that I have or I want, the job that I have or I want. And what Jesus is saying to us is, Remember the work that he's done for us. Remember that we aren't those that live this life trying to gain things. We have the best job because we've been given our paycheck before we've had to do any work. And our paycheck and our gift, eternal security, salvation with God, is not based on how well that we work. It's provided to us on the front end so that we're motivated to work. So, so like Paul says, is this, no, here's the beauty of the life that we live, is that we don't have to spend our time trying to say, what do we gain from all of this work? We can say, because of what Jesus has done for, for me, I spend the rest of my life not trying to gain anything from my work, not trying to gain identity from how I act, but telling everybody else that's in this casino, there's a better way. There's a better way. You're never going to get anything here. But I know somebody who has already secured everything that you've wanted. That's our work. That's our task here in this life. It's not a suggestion. It's truth from God's word. And it's the only way that you'll be sane in a world where everything breaks down. Ecclesiastes 12, I'm just going to give you a hint on how the book ends. 12.1 starts off with these words. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. A life without God is a life without gain. So our fight is to keep God at the center of all that we do. And we're reminded there is an allergy that we have to that. And the only way that it changes is the work that Jesus Christ has done in our lives. 
And the beauty is, since it's not based on your work, everybody is as likely of a candidate to experience the gain that comes from Christ. It only comes with us acknowledging the truths of what goes on in this world, acknowledging the fact that we fall short, and praying, pleading that God would change us from the inside out. Abel's death seemed like it was in vain until Jesus Christ came on the scene. And now we can look back and see his death was not in vain. His death was just a backdrop to where when Christ came, his work shined brighter. And the beauty is regardless of what you do, regardless of what your life is like, if God is at the center, there is nothing in your life that is meaningless. All of it serves as a backdrop to shine the beauty of God's work to a people that are running on a hamster wheel trying to find meaning. So let's pray that God would give us the grace to engage with this book slowly and honestly that before we spend our time answering how to, let's really explore why. Why do I live? Why do I work? What do I hope to to get? And that's a great question to sit and engage with some folks with at lunch after church. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're grateful that you provide us what it is that we really need. Uh, We don't need jobs to give us fulfillment. We don't need money. We don't need pleasure. We don't need knowledge. All of those things are hollow and they'll break down at some point. Father, I pray that you would remind us that, um, Lord, that as sure as a life without you is a life without gain, a life with you is a life that can be lived with ultimate pleasure and satisfaction. Help us to be those that constantly seek you first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.